when I was first introduced to him a long time ago, right, Danny? He was Pastor Danny here. He was a youth pastor and an excellent one at that and uh, was a very welcoming presence to me as I was getting my feet wet in full-time ministry and things. And so I've gotten to know he and his wife, Marianne, and their children so much over the years, and my respect for them only grows. And so uh, all of that, we just have people up here to read scripture so we can gush on them a little bit. I know how to read the text. I just need somebody up here so I can compliment. No, I'm just kidding. No, this is just our opportunity to thank people for who they are. And so get to know Danny and Marianne if you don't already. Um, I believe that their lives are an example of what it looks like when you say, okay, Lord, lead me. Um, how do I follow the Lord's call and stuff? They will tell you that it's uh, full of reward and full of challenge all at the same time. No sugarcoating that the Lord leads us into difficult territory as well as into the pleasant. And there's usually a mixture of both. So, all right, Danny, have I covered all the notes you wanted me to share about you? <laughs> all right. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be with you this morning and feeling a little bit like we're, we're kind of having a, a relaxed atmosphere from the uh, super high emotionally charged, incredible Easter uh, week and weekend that we had. And so I think that the Lord gives us some of that every once in a while to kind of uh, pace ourselves, you know. And so I hope that you find that my delivery this morning is in keeping with that. If I see some of you napping, I'll get it. The only thing keeping me awake this morning is my own words, maybe. So maybe my words are what's putting you to sleep. I know it's worked for my children tremendously well over the years. I think I'm talking to people in the backseat. I look back and they're out and drooling and stuff. It's like, all right, that's what my voice does, I guess. But however you respond to the sermon this morning, um, I hope that it's similar to what we just heard in verse 37 of our text. If I'm being honest with you as a human being who does a certain thing for a living, when you respond favorably to what it is I do and you compliment me, it's a very complimenting church and stuff. It was one of the reasons why I was hesitant to be seen in the back when the service is done. It was really my wife's idea when we were stepping into this role. She says, let's go out in the entryway and get to see people and say hi before they leave and everything. I was hesitant to do it because to me, I've watched all the old shows. I've seen Little House on the Prairie. I see the way that the caricature of the preacher is. He's supposed to be at that door as everyone's leaving. And in a sense, it looks like compliment my sermon, compliment my sermon. Tell me how good I did today. It seems like it's this intentional because that's what you as nice people want to do. You see me like, hey, nice job today. And I appreciate that. But there's a part of me that wants to know if there's more going on with the delivery of God's word. And I think you would say you experience the same thing when it comes to how you're raising your children or the effort you're putting in at work or something. You want to know what counts. You want to know where the substance of something is and whether or not it's paying off in a deeper way than just something that feels a little bit more on the surface and maybe a complimentary fashion. Now, I know I've gotten into your heads and you're going to be like, now we can't say anything to them after. I don't know what to say. Just don't change what you do. You're a lovely group of people. Don't don't change. It's me that needs to change. The spirit in me would want to hear those kind of conversations that say, 
the Lord's really doing something in my life through this text or through this study or anything, whether it has anything to do with my words or not, that the Lord wants to use us as vessels to see this change. And so Peter has just preached this incredible message. It's really unfair how it was his first sermon and it was so dynamic and cool. And then we see the end results of what happens when it's like, well, that's not fair at all. Most of us have to practice at this. We have to study and get ready. And he's just like, you know what? I'm going to say something. And he says something, and it's this incredible delivery, it's an amazing response, but really Peter's preparation was all before that moment. And the Lord was bringing him to that place, and the moving of the Holy Spirit was uh, fully engaged in Peter's life and heart. And so a couple weeks ago, as Pastor Gary was up here, uh, he walked us through this message that Peter preached to a ready audience because they had witnessed something really incredible. They were, they were seeing people that they knew did not know how to speak the language that they spoke. And yet in a drop of a hat, in a split second, they were speaking that language and they were hearing their own language back to them. They knew this has got to be something really weird going on and that those that were dismissing the obvious in front of them, were like, ah, they're just drunk. And they, they were, they were just covering over the facts and the logic of what was clearly playing out before their eyes. But Peter, in his sermon, he had hit them right between the eyes. He said, he said, you as a people have crucified the one who's made all of this possible. That the Holy Spirit's arrival was based on a promise that God the Father had given centuries before. And he says, when, when, when the, when the Messiah has come and when you've crucified him, when he's moved, uh, moved on, if you will, but really ascended to the right hand of the Father, that the spirit of promise will come. And that's what you're seeing on display right now. Peter wasn't pulling any punches. He says, you killed him. The reason why we're here today it's because you didn't see what was going on before your eyes and you killed him. But these things had to happen. This is what the scriptures prophesied would happen exactly as it played out. So Peter is showing them these things. He's walking them through these things. And their response wasn't just nice sermon, pastor. Good preaching today. They said, what, uh, what do we do with this? We, you have just blown our worlds wide open. We are feeling something inside we've never felt. We are feeling ownership of the problem. We are feeling conviction that, that perhaps it was our sins that, that were nailed to the cross with him, that, 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 that we buried the one that we've been waiting for, the one that we've been praying in temple week after week after week, year after year after year waiting for. You're saying that's the one? We finally got him and we killed him? We don't know what to do with that. Peter gets this incredible reaction to his preaching because he's got a ready audience. Tell us what to do next and we'll do it. This isn't always going to be the crowd's reaction. It's not Peter's fault or even his own gifting that brought about this reaction. It's what the spirit had primed for at the time, because in a couple chapters later, we're going to see that when they heard the preaching, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. You so far, none of you have expressed any of that emotion coming my way after Sunday. I appreciate that. So even if it's a mild disregard or I slept through the whole, it's far better than in rage. I want to kill that guy. It, it, it happens again. They've got one response, like one trick ponies here. A couple chapters later, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This isn't the same crowd that's reacting to Peter's 
um, presentation in our text. It's not like they changed their mind. It's just that as they continued to present these things to the Jews, they ran into different reactions. But the reaction of the text that we're seeing in chapter 2 couldn't be any better. They were ready for the next step. They, they, they had witnessed the moving of the Holy Spirit and what they're putting on display for us is as we extract these things out of the text is what does the movement of the Holy Spirit look like? And the Holy Spirit's movement looks like the transformation of the individual heart. These were people who had real lives, real scenarios to go back home to, real consequences for the decision they were about to make right then and there. And yet the Holy Spirit was moving so profoundly they had to respond. We don't know what to do with what we've heard from you, Peter. Tell us what to do next. So the Holy Spirit, as he moves, we see that it starts with the impetus of a response to the Holy Spirit starts with a conviction of the heart. You heard the words in verse 37. They were cut to the heart. I was having a conversation with some folks this week and we were reminding ourselves a little bit about the role of guilt in our lives. And I was sharing with them that I was talking with somebody I used to work with a couple of decades back out in the professional space and stuff. And, and this guy was a very, you know, accomplished person and, and, um, he had come from, uh, Judaism roots and stuff, but instead found peace as he would explain it in one of the mainline church denominations you know i forget which branch it was but it was definitely one of those people by his own admission and quoting he says what i love about going there on a sunday is there's no guilt and and i and i kind of got what he i lost something here my battery battery die this is unplanned oh oh i'm sorry ron doesn't like the guilt part just for that, just for that, buddy, I'm laying in on extra thick. So if you're a sound man and you don't know, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I, I understood where the guy was coming from a bit because being brought up in a religious kind of overarching construct is a lot of do this and don't do that sort of thing. And so we equate guilt with rules and things that we can't do in a life that we can't have because we're not free to express it and that sort of thing. So I understood that. But the removal of guilt entirely would be like you and I saying, ah, I, I'm loving my life right now because there's no pain. It's like, well, pain is helpful to us to tell us that something's going wrong. If I've put my hand on the stove and can't feel it, then I'm going to have worse consequences than the momentary pain and the blistering and things that comes with a burn. Guilt is in our lives as like that warning light on the dashboard that says something's wrong with the engine, address it. And so the desire to have all guilt removed and for us to just feel free to go about our existence and not have anybody challenge us, not have anybody remind us that we've made a mistake or we've stepped in or anything like that, to have that removed from us is not a good desire to have in our lives. Greater problems will come. And if we're being honest, it's not really reality. I, I think maybe his statement of, I like going there because there's no guilt, probably just means they don't try to lay it on thick, but I don't see how we escape any kind of scenario where Jesus might be portrayed or preached and us not feel a little bit like, I'm not as good as him. So what shall we do was their response. Because Peter was a meanie? No. Because he hit him where it hurts? Yeah, but... Not to make them feel bad. He just said the truth about Jesus. 
He said the truth about what really happened to Jesus and what happened because of Jesus. What was God's plan in all of this? And they felt the weight of that. They were convicted about how they had handled Jesus. They were convicted about how they had missed the the whole sign of the Messiah having come. They were asking, in a sense, how can we reverse this tragedy? I mean, obviously, we can't undo the beatings and the crucifixion. And But there's got to be something we can do. Isn't that what we want when we really feel terrible about something? We just think, just tell me anything and I'll do it. What would make you feel better about this, what I've done to you? They were at a loss. They were, I, I, there's nothing I can do. I, he's already brought himself back. I can't bring him back. I can't erase the, the jeering and the spitting on him and the punching of his face. I can't let any, make any of those things go away. But Peter is pressing in on their conscience so that the Holy Spirit will convict them. That warning light will go off and say, something's wrong. You did wrong in this scenario because of who you are, which as we know is a sinner. So Peter, even a little bit later on in verse 40, we're going to see that with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. This is an important word. He was saying to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Luke is saying that Peter was was calling them near, saying, listen, there's something you need to hear. But exhorting has got a bit of a mixed um, emotion to it or intent behind it where it actually wants to comfort you. In the hard truth, Peter is saying, I want you to come near. I want you to hear this. It's going to sting a little, but you need to hear this if things are going to be made right. And this was Peter's mode. This is how the apostles continued to teach. And so the important thing I'm trying to get us to see here, because in our culture, in our day and age, we avoid the guilt. Who am I to say that I can't judge and all these sorts of things? Peter didn't dance around the truth. He didn't avoid saying the hard things and the right things, even though they were painful to hear. But he did it in such a way that called them closer. This response is not by accident. What do we do with what we're hearing? Peter wasn't trying to be unnecessarily harsh. There's something that we Christians, I'm speaking to us believers here, who are engaged in the the public sphere and the conversation that's going on about there, what's right, what's wrong, what's going on in society and those kinds of things. We have to understand that true conviction of the heart where someone might come and say, you're absolutely right, I need to do something different, what do I do? To get people to that point, being led by the Spirit needs to think about the fact that true conviction of the heart is when a person sees their sin against the purity of Jesus Christ. Not just about your anger, not just about the things that offend you personally. Who is Jesus really? And have I presented him? Have I shown him to be the one that you traded in? Have I showed him to be the one that you beat? Have I showed him to be the one that you crucified? There's a caution for us in this as we're moving by. Maybe this is perhaps a drive-by guilting on my part, but as we said, we're not trying to avoid guilt here. To focus more on how people offend the holiness of God as opposed to our own sensitivities. I understand that sometimes we might say, well, I'm offended about the things that offend God. And I agree with that. And I believe that to be true for most Bible-believing, Bible-living Christians. But the point is, is that oftentimes the way we resist those offenses or respond to those offenses looks more like you're encroaching on my territory and I can't have it. You're upsetting my apple cart and I'm not going to allow it. 
It's a principle for us to take into consideration as we look at this. The Holy Spirit moves and conviction of the heart soon follows. And what's the reaction? As the Holy Spirit moves, there's repentance from sin. So the text continues to tell us in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. So much of what our culture is hearing about truth or hearing about what God is doing or something often lacks this expectation of repentance, which is to think differently about Jesus. In particular, in this Jewish audience, they had to think differently about the events they had just witnessed and perhaps even participated in, got kind of ginned up as the crowd. And then they're starting to realize going, what have we just done? They needed to acknowledge that their mind was changing. Their attitude about who Jesus is, is had to shift. And the reason why this is important for us today is I'm kind of a broken record about this is that often we see that Jesus and or quote religion can be added onto a path we're already heading on is a very dangerous lie that there's no change of mind that needs to happen. I don't really need to drop who I am, who I've been, what I've done or anything in order to follow Jesus. He's loving, forgiving, and he just gets along for the ride. And I can have some praise time and I can have some some Jesus moments and things. I can enjoy my church family from time to time. But to actually ask me to adjust my life, it's just impractical and unheard of. And this is what is creeping into our culture is that we are seeing in some strange circles, even in like celebrity circles and things, that Jesus and worship is getting more popular. And we might look at that and say, well, that's good news for us. That's going to help us as a church exist. But without repentance, without a challenge from the Holy Spirit to say, change your thinking about Jesus, which we'll get into here in a minute of what this really means. Without that, we're skipping the most critical step in really following him. In other words, we could say it this way. There's no individual salvation of the soul without repentance of the heart. We have to see our sin for what it is, put it up against the purity and the holiness of God and say, okay, this doesn't belong in my life. I just have no means of paying for it. I'm the guilty one here. And so Jesus says, well, I've paid for it. So you put your faith and trust in me. I've covered you. I've, 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 I've purified you. I've forgiven you. My father looks down on you and sees me instead of your sin and your ugliness. And when we see that, we say, so I'm going to leave that stuff behind. I don't need to go back to that anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to walk in the other direction of all the things that offended God, that nailed him to a cross, that kept me at odds and at distance with a loving, holy God. Repentance means turn around, walk the other way. So he says to them, repent. And the order is repent and then be baptized, which is a practice of identification. The Jews were used to baptism. They, this was a common practice. Christians didn't invent this. Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist, and they see this um, uh, as, as an expression of identity. And the Jews were used to this because they also had it as part of their religious practices. However, the requirement was for the Gentiles only. 
the lowly, unfortunate Gentiles. If you want to be one of us, you are the ones that need to be baptized. There was no requirement on the Jews to be baptized. So if we're putting our cultural antennas up on Peter's requirement for now, these Jews must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we're starting to see if you really want to identify yourself as a follower of him more than just saying, oh, yeah, you know, you said, I'm sorry that that happened to him. Hey, can I come to your services? They look like they're rocking. They look like they're pretty cool. You guys treat each other nice. Can I be a part of that? They're like, no, no. Before you're really included with one of us, you need to humble yourself, lower yourself like you've always expected the Gentiles, the outsiders to do to be identified with you. It's not because those Christians at the time were on their high horse and we're going to get you back for this. They were just saying this is an identifying marker that on the outside, what has gone on inside you is that you've truly changed your mind about who Jesus is. You've changed your attitude about receiving him and following him to be baptized, to be brought into the water and brought out so that, that we can see that you're going beyond more than, hey, I just said I was sorry. What more do you want from me? As we so often do when we say we're sorry and we want to be included. Hey, you let me off the hook? No, this is a little bit deeper than that. So baptism was a public demonstration, an external identification of something that was changing in the heart. And that heart change was towards the person of Jesus Christ. Stott clarifies for us here of all that this means, what baptism in Christ's name means is living by his authority acknowledging his claims, subscribing to his doctrines, engaging in his service, and relying on his merits, on his holiness, on his work, so it's no longer about what we can do. Not very different from the baptism that Peter was calling his hearers to uh, to participate is the same call that we throw out on pretty much an annual basis here at Faith. And I'd be remiss if I didn't turn this into a bit of a commercial for our attempts to lead people further into their obedience in their growing in Jesus Christ to engage in baptism. It's not just a strange little practice that we invented somewhere along the way or anything. This this is an, a, a beautiful word picture, an external word picture of being buried with Jesus in his sin and being raised again in the newness of life, all depicted in the life, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's an identity marker. It's not for salvation. This text has been used in the past to prove, well, if you want to be saved, you have to be baptized. And I know that there's plenty here that would say, I've received Christ and I've asked for forgiveness of sins, but I have yet to be baptized. That means if I'm in the car accident and I don't make it home and everything that I go to hell. And there's nothing in scripture other than a poor reading of the wording that would indicate that baptism is necessary for salvation. When we say this is be repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, it's not in uh, uh, in way of a, a passage into a thing as much as it is an acknowledgement of something that's always already happened. If I said to you, I'm giving you an award for bravery, I'm not giving you an award hoping that you'll finally figure out how to be brave. I'm acknowledging that you already have been. And so this is what Peter is getting at because we know this because we balance it out with the rest of scripture. That we repent of our sins, that we have, uh, that we have, we have changed our mind about Jesus. We're now followers of him and that's happened on the inside, all the work of the Holy Spirit. 
We're sealed until the day of redemption, and we demonstrate it outwardly in this act of baptism. And so on August 20th, we like to get uh, some time out in our front lawn. We set up all the chairs and put a stage up and everything and have a big celebration for the changes that are taking place in people's lives. Now, one thing that you'll see here is we see that there's 3,000 people added. That's a lot of dunking in one day. And faith has its own little tank and we heat it up. We get it out. They wouldn't have had that luxury. There, there's something about a lot of pools in the area and they were able to do it and stuff. But you got to move through the herd pretty quick if you're going to baptize 3,000 people that day. We don't have that problem. If we did, that would be a great problem to have. But we don't have that problem. And so what's taking place here is a public acknowledgement. Something in me has changed and I want you to know about it. And way churches go about that varies from church to church. We believe, as the scripture says, that we are to publicly proclaim that the Lord Jesus is the Lord of our lives. What we are adjusting, and I'm just giving you the heads up, I'm giving you a four-month warning, those of you shy people, and I know you're out there, a four-month warning, that yes, even in our day and age, faith is making an adjustment to some of our practices, that we still believe that you should be baptized before witnesses. We still believe that your testimony of following Jesus Christ needs to be heard. But this idea of speaking for five, seven, eight, ten minutes in front of 300 eager people staring at you might be a little uncomfortable. So what we would like to present to you, again, four months early, is that you'll have an opportunity to speak one-on-one to an elder or a leader at the church about your testimony and your transformation in Christ. And then you'd be joining us publicly on the lawn without having to share a whole lot of words other than maybe a yes or a no, if you aren't following Jesus. And then which way we'll say, get out of the water. What are you doing here? Wasting our time. So I encourage you to consider, because I do believe that we live in a day and age where shyness and intimidation is, um, is, is, is holding people back from still finding ways of proclaiming Jesus. And there's some of that that we need to understand, but we can't just pass on all of biblical practice, of course, to accommodate that. So what is Peter saying? Identify with the Savior that you have now changed your heart and mind about. And he says this promise of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. It's for your children. It's for those who are far off. That language takes us back to something we studied in Ephesians 2, where Paul had said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, this could be prophetically speaking to the Gentiles, the outsiders are coming in, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peter's saying it's for everyone who's been called. It's been, it's for everyone who repents and the spirit will come upon you that he will do the things that only God can do in your life. This promise is for all of you. It's available to all the present, the dispersed, the current, the future. And like we said, even the outsiders. And so we go back to verse 40 to see what this means that he exhorted them. He said, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. Can you imagine the potluck dinners? Could you imagine the organization, the sign-up sheets, the, the incredible worship team they could have with all that p- talent pool to draw from? They were added 3,000 souls 
that day. There's a part of me that finds that really exciting. There's another part that just says, oh, Lord, just 10 at a time. Let's do that. Pretty amazing. But he says to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Isn't it interesting that at that time, we always look back in history, it must have been easier back then. We've said it about our American history. We could even say it about ancient history. It must have been easier to be apart from culture. It must have been easier to live for God back then. But even then, he says, this is a crooked generation and you are called to separate yourself, to be holy from it, not to be distant from it, but to not be um, um, uh, over infected by it in your heart and in your actions. Holiness is a necessary but difficult calling for every generation. I, I find it interesting if we do a, a little bit of a comparison on the, the calendar or the timeline here, that on the day that 3,000 souls were added to the church, if you go back in history, be the same day that the law was given on Mount Sinai of which 3,000 people died. There's an indicator here. I'm not going to go out on a limb and read so much into that, but isn't it interesting that as the law is given, which is a true reflection of who God is, what he cares about, what his character is, it's a standard we can't live up to. It is death inducing on us because we can't earn it. And yet as the spirit comes in grace and we're living off of the completed work of Jesus Christ, we find life. Let me do this for us as before we move on to the next point that there's a summary here. We've been talking a lot, Pastor Tom, in the um, announcements this morning and preparing us for the the next phase of the uh, disciple growth track and things. We talk a lot about the the infusion and the living by the gospel in our lives. There's a summary that we can pull out of Acts chapter two that helps us to see this, the uh, the gospel presented here by Peter. The gospel here is that there were two events that we need to know and encounter. That is the that the death of Jesus and his resurrection. There were two witnesses to this because uh, that was important in Jewish law. It was a requirement of Jewish law to have two witnesses. So when we see two angels appearing and two people telling a story and that sort of stuff, that's all there to say this thing is airtight. This satisfies every requirement. Peter had pointed to the prophets, Joel and David, in their testimony that this day had to happen, that the Pentecost day and the arrival of the Spirit had to happen. But now we have the witness of the apostles in this current era. And what are they a witness to? They're a witness to two promises given that there is a forgiveness of our sins and there is a gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us under two conditions. That there's a repentance of our hearts and faith that we put in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And all of this is indicated by the simple act of baptism. This is the, the gospel expression and the gospel encounter in a nutshell as we see it in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, when he comes on the scene, he transforms individuals, but he also transforms the church. So we move on in our text. If we're asking the question, which I think we should of every church is what is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is leading a church? The answer couldn't be more succinct and beautifully presented as it is in verses 42 through 47. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread 
in the prayers. If the Holy Spirit is moving in a congregation, they will devote themselves to the instruction of God's word. That they will look to the teaching as something that is life-giving and something they can't get enough of. Let me brag on you guys just for a second. Because I'm in and out of this building quite a bit and at varying times, sometimes in the evenings and things like that. And I know that what happens in this building is just also kind of a microcosm of what's happening in homes all around the greater Waterville area. And what I see in this congregation is a hunger to learn who is God and how has he expressed himself in his word. I hear discussion about scripture passages. I hear people going, oh, that reminds me of something that he said over here. And I hear people, and these aren't just the teachers or the leaders. These are the participants in groups. Yes, we could all want God's word more. We're going to continue to challenge you to study it more, to learn it more, all those sorts of things. I'm not trying to get us to rest on our laurels, but it is the most encouraging thing to interrupt groups. I'm trying to tiptoe past them, and I'm just hearing you divulge knowledge of Scripture, not in showy ways, but in hungry ways. The knowledge of God's word was and still must be the priority of the church. We need to grow in our understanding of the doctrines of scripture, the instruction of the, the, the apostles, because they are life-giving and they give us direction and a wisdom outside of our own human understanding. In our counseling ministry, in Celebrate Recovery, and in other um, counseling kind of environments, what we require of those that participate What we look for to be present ongoing is not all the answers and not uh, perfect track records or any of those things. What we ask for is a learner's spirit, a humility that says all my best thinking has got me into this jam that I'm in right now. I'm kind of done listening to me. I want to start hearing from a more trustworthy voice. And let me tell you, as I admit to them, as they're sitting across the desk, it ain't mine. I might know a few things or I might have some experiences, but the any, anything I can give you of any value comes from the word of God. So that's what we've dedicated ourselves to learning and to knowing so that we can impart it to you. Mark Deaver in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, tells us that if you get the priority of the word established in the church, then you have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life and growing health is virtually assured. The knowledge of God's word, not just us becoming egg eggs and little brainiacs who can quote all the scriptures and stuff like that, but a knowledge of what God's word is moving us into and the maturity that it produces is the single most important aspect of the church's life. Not the strength of its worship team, not the comfort of its sanctuary, not the size of its budget, any of those things. Because the word of God is how we see the face of God. And as Moses can attest to, you can't see the face of God without being changed. So there's a devotion to teaching that is present when the Spirit is leading. There's a fellowship with the saints that is being desired. This fellowship word, many of you know it, koinonia, simply means having something in common, having a partnership with having participation or communion. We call the Last Supper and the the Lord's Table here communion because we're partnering in this remembrance together. And this fellowship is a togetherness that goes beyond just sharing space. Anybody can create environments for people to hang out in. 
But to have real fellowship, biblical fellowship means we're starting to partner together, that we participate in one another's lives. And back in that day, there were Greek philosophers that would use this word koinonia to kind of promote where the utopia was. They would say, we want to get society to be to a koinonia level so that everyone can relate, but they just never achieved it on their own. I don't care how many peace songs are written or attempts to have the right kind of books or anything like that. You can't make people have koinonia. It's something that comes from somewhere else. And the reason why they never experienced it in a secular society is because there was a missing ingredient. Paul tells us what that missing ingredient is in first Corinthians, where he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You take any two people at any point, and you say, I want you individually to pursue Jesus on your own. I want you to grow in him. As you put Jesus as the center target, what happens in that pyramid sort of triangle looking thing, they get closer together because they are submitting individually to the will and the understanding of who Jesus is. And we fix human relation problems as we get people to chase the will of God or to acquire more knowledge. Their fellowship grows because Jesus is in their midst. No relationship with Christ, no real relationship with other people. We continue in our text in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had koinonia happening had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. You said, I knew we were going to get there. We're just going to have an offering after church. You're going to bring all your toys and your possessions and all that sort of stuff. They were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's some things that are going on here and there are some things that aren't that need just a little bit of clarification. We don't need to spend a lot of time. And I believe that Jeremy is going to be covering this in a few weeks when he gets to his part of Acts. But there isn't a communism thing going on here. So let's just kind of clarify this one, because a little bit later on, we see that they're still gathering in one another's homes. They didn't give up all their stuff. There's certainly no forcing of this selling or uh, giving up their possessions. The apostles aren't saying if you were really walking with Jesus, you'd let it all go, you know, give it to us, which is what we hear a lot in ministries, right? A lot of that guilting and that pressuring people to think that it's just a matter of faith. I think what we're seeing here is a move of the spirit that has that that creates less and less value in the things of earth. That they're seeing the kingdom of God arrive and they're like, that's the thing I want to participate in. I I don't care about this other stuff that I was trying to accumulate anymore. So they're looking at that extra piece of land and they're going, why do we need this? Well, we're going to do that vacation home on it. Yeah, but there's people that we want to help get into the kingdom. And they were just trading in one value for the other. And they were saying, this is worthless to us now, but we could turn it into the thing that would impact the kingdom of God. And that's what we see happening is this momentum of the kingdom. And this is not a sermon about your vacation land. Please do not hear me say that. We have to do these things in wisdom and leading of the spirit. I can't say what he's leading you to do or not do. I can't tell you what's too much for you to own or what's not enough. These are the things that we, as we're growing in wisdom in our understanding of scriptures, we come to places with. But what I can tell you is that as you grow in your uh, desire to walk in the kingdom of God, you can expect to have a greater disassociation with the things that used to matter to you in this world. And that's okay. The more you resist that, the less you'll see God moving in his kingdom in incredible ways. 
So these guys had all things in common. They were sharing it with anyone who had need. Maybe they had a system, maybe they didn't. At faith, in this day and age, we have a bit of a system. We have a bit of a way of going about doing things. But if you bypass a system because you want to help somebody else, we're like, that's awesome. I hear about this all the time, whether it's in small groups and other things. People are just like, oh, yeah, so-and-so had a need. We just took care of it. You don't have to run things through the pastors. This is the what it looks like to have a healthy church as they're responding to the leading of the Spirit to do these things. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. It doesn't matter how the dollars are counted or any of those kinds of things. And it wasn't just for those like them. This is the interesting thing I wish we had more time on, but I'm sure we'll cover it more as we go through Acts. Is Christianity has had the biggest impact on diversity than any other movement's ever had. And as people saw one another as those in need of a savior and, 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 and were the recipients of his grace, their nationality, their color, their gender, their, all these other things mattered less and less and less to them. We get preaching from the world that people like conservative Christians need to be more inclusive. And yet there's never been a more diverse environment than a church that is led by the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening in true fellowship. As we see the list continuing to play out, the leading of the spirit is indicated by consuming worship in verse 46 day by day. There's an element there of this was just their life. Now this was their new rhythm. They were doing this all the time, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They're sharing meals together and they're sharing the, uh, the remembrance around the Lord's table of his broken body and his uh, spilled blood. But they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. That's where we get the instruction for Christians to come around their table and before just woofing their food down, let's, let's wait, let's pray. A lesson Mrs. Small has to often remind me to do. I'm embarrassed to say. Try to be relatable to the people. But if the food smells good, and then I often make the same joke her grandfather used to make, which is, well, I just wanted to make sure I could be thankful for it. After I tasted that it was good, I had some... Terrible, how the Lord has struck me dead. I don't mean it. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. There's an infectious momentum of joy and togetherness that's happening. They're in the temple. They're saying the prayers we saw in verse 42, but they're also praying together, not just in a ritualistic way. They're witnessing perhaps to the unconverted Jews in the temple. They're saying, let's get together for dinner tonight. You guys all come over my house and we'll just talk about what the Holy Spirit's doing. There's all this momentum. There's these things happening. And I think a lot of times those that have been saved for a long time, those that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, they have a testimony that says there have been seasons of intense fellowship where it was just so natural, it was second nature really, just to be able to be with one another and share the table together and to be praying for one another. But unfortunately what happens is the longer it goes, that becomes a season back when I was younger. To be able to say this is what's happening in my life now, sometimes it's difficult for us the older we get to continue that or to be open to that kind of thing. And I think the challenge here for us as, as Christians is to never be satisfied with the level of fellowship we have and to express our worship to the Lord with glad and generous hearts. This is what we're seeing around their table. Hearts on fire in praise. Generosity, the sharing that they were doing with one another, is a direct outpouring of thankfulness that comes from one's heart. The two are inextricably linked. And therefore, 
They engage in compelling outreach. And this is where the story just starts to launch. We see what's happening with the Jews and beyond. We called this series Setting the City on Fire, but eventually it's going to be setting our state and our, our country on fire, setting the world on fire, because this is what the gospel does when the spirit is on the move. This is what it says in the latter part of verse 47. They were having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. We are to witness for Christ, but we are to witness about him favorably. Not so that everybody will like us, not so that everyone will accept us. We started our time this morning with saying that sometimes the truth is going to offend people so bad. They're like, I'm going to kill you now. Sometimes that happens. But to desire to win them over to the love and the grace and the truth of who Jesus is, that's something that we can control. How much do we project that? We fail on two extreme ends where we either only have that one speed that is harsh in the name of truth. Hey, I just tell it like it is. And if you can't handle it, well, then you have no business. You're never going to surrender to Jesus. You just have to hear the truth. And this is what it is. And that's the only speed you operate on. Then most likely you're more of a confrontational person, not just a hard hitting Christian. Or maybe on the other side, you're so passive because you wouldn't want to ever judge anybody. So you say, look, in the name of peace, I mean, I know I was a sinner and everything, so I can't change people's behavior and everything. So we never stand up to the things that are going absolutely destructive in other people's lives, never confronting them with the truth that he came to die for that. And there's a better way. When we point people to Jesus we're pointing to his truth and his character, and we're going to see that we'll always be seeking to find the balance of the firm love that he demonstrated, but the tolerance that led him to share lunch with prostitutes. We forget that we serve that Jesus, that he was so winsome and he was so engaging and full of grace and had no ulterior motives or any of those sorts of things that he could reach those that society had cast aside and show them love. He, he wasn't saying, hey, I'm with you guys. I think you need to earn a living, anything. No, he convicted them of their sin and their hearts broke in his presence. But he didn't distance himself from them. What's the result of this? Well, it's kind of sandwiched in our text here. Verse 43, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. When when the church is being led by the Spirit and it shows up this way, people can't believe what they're seeing. They have their own expectations of how we're supposed to be. They have their own expectations of what their own needs are. But when they see the Holy Spirit leading a church, they're like, I can't, I can't put my finger. I don't know how you guys do what you do. And awe came upon every soul. And awe seems like a s- simple word for us, but it's as as crazy to them as seeing them speak in other languages that they didn't know they had the ability to speak. So the questions for us are, have we publicly acknowledged the change in heart that we have to Christ? Maybe you've come to a place where you're like, no, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I just haven't told anybody. I just smile when I come to church. I shake hands. I sing the songs. But it's religion's more of a private matter. And I take it very personally. I'm not picking on you. I'm not trying to be sarcastic or anything. I just know that that's really the position that so many take. 
that I can follow Jesus either in the, in the solidarity of my own commitment. I don't need to really reach out and accept other people in my life or certainly not tell them that I'm a follower of his. But everything we're seeing on display here in Acts is one that requires a demonstration, an identity change. So do you need to prepare for obedience in baptism? We can help you with that. We can work around all kinds of things, but still the act of baptism and the identity description is what's needed. Are you hungry for knowledge of the Bible? Do you pursue fellowship with other believers? Have you gotten a little bit distant? Have you gotten a little bit, eh, it's messy. I'm a private person. I don't really want to open myself up and be vulnerable. Do you fellowship with other people? Do you engage in all-consuming praise of God, which is just a thankfulness to be alive, a thankfulness to have the food on your table, a thankfulness to be able to break bread with your brothers and sisters? Do you reach sinners in a compelling way, one that draws them closer to the person of Jesus rather than pushes them away from the expectations that you have of people in society? The city in which we live will be transformed as we allow our own hearts to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm calling faith to be in this era is a church that blows people's minds, that engage, uh, that, that produces awe in onlookers at how well we love each other and how willing we are to love them. And I know that we are poised in position to experience just that. And that's going to be our prayer going forward. Would you please stand and join me in that prayer? And we will engage in expressive worship as we leave here this morning. Lord God, I want to thank you again for the hunger of your people. I thank you, Lord, for the solidarity of those that are here that want to grow in your word in an understanding of it, that they want to see other people grow in an encountering of your grace. So I pray, Lord, that as we continue to equip and encourage one another, that we would show each other a long, long leash of grace because we've been shown an even longer leash. Help us to put up with one another. Help us to support one another and want for victory for each person. So, Lord, help us to just walk in you in all of these ways. We can't manufacture it. We can't create programs that will produce it perfectly. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead, and we need to be surrendered to follow. So, Lord, please hear the words of my prayer on behalf of my brothers and sisters here today. And lead them into great territory, Lord, of walking in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.